Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, welcome everybody to GodPod 87. And um, we are nearing our 100th, but... Um, and so is uh, the God pod, actually. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Just <laughs> all I wanted to hear. Um, so, as you can tell from that uh, familiar voice, we have Mike Lloyd here. Hi, good to be with you again. Um, sadly, we don't have Jane. She is um, she's elsewhere at the moment. But we do have a guest with us today, which is wonderful. And um, our guest today is Ellen Cherry. Hello, everyone. So, Ellen, it's great to have you with us. Um, uh, Ellen is the... Um, uh, Professor of Theology at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary in the U.S. She is, um, I think, Margaret Harmon Professor of Theology. Is that right? Yes, it is. Your official title? Yes. And uh, Ellen is um, uh, here with us at the moment because uh, we are hosting um, something called the McDonald Lectures. And Ellen's giving a, a lecture tonight, which uh, you should be able to find on our website um, by the time this comes out. And uh, so as part of that, we are recording a little GodPod session. Now, I ought to say... Before we really get into the meat of the theology, there is also some other nourishment on our table as well. Provided by the McDonald Foundation. Provided, very kindly, by oh. Mark Morris, who um, ah, okay. organises the, um, the the McDonald um, Foundation, and who sent, sent us a, a whole box full of various goodies. So we have here, not just our usual meagre biscuits, but we have ginger and raspberry marshmallows. We have various kinds of fudge. We have... What else do we have down well, there? We ha- well, the P.S. de Resistance. So I'm not allowed to mention, oh, it'd be p- product placement, uh, the name of the thing, but it's a <laughs> kind of gingerbread that comes from Grasmere. <laughs> it is. And, Grasmere and it is, is an in... uber gingerbread. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't possibly tell district. you the name of the thing, but... <laughs> Might even be Grasmere gingerbread. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a logical thing yeah, to exactly. call it. But it's, um, it's very nice. Grasmere, in case you don't know, is in the Lake District in the north of England. Where Wordsworth lived for quite a long time. And the shop that they sell them in uh, is where he taught yeah. when he was a schoolmaster. And presumably ate the gingerbread. Um, well, that might be anachronistic. But he would have done if there'd been any. Possibly true. Anyway, we're not just here to eat food, although we are enjoying that. So if you hear the odd crunch every now and again, that's the gingerbread disappearing down Mike's throat. Um, <laughs> but we are here to, um, uh, and to um, talk some theology, as always, and it's great to have... Ellen with us. So Ellen, um, I'd love to know, what, um, what brought you to theology? How did you become a theologian? Mm, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, in my reflections on life and history and reality when I was uh, coming along, um, I saw the religions of the world and realized that they can become very dangerous. Oh. And I concluded that next to nationalism, religion is the most dangerous force. And so I said to myself along somewhere with the French Revolution, well, maybe we should get rid of it. And then I said, well, we have to, I have to study it. I have to understand it. So I went to study it. And I went to a place where I was forced to study all the world's religions, not a theological college, but University Department of Religious Studies, where I had to study basically all the world's major traditions, yeah. and um, and and did that, and uh, realized that we need religion and we need God, mm. 
So I then said, well, we need to make the religions be as safe as possible. And so, therefore, I dedicated myself to theology, which is at the core of uh, religious conviction, mm-hmm. and uh, have been doing that ever since. So can I ask, <coughs> you say you came to a, a realization that we needed religion and we needed God. And I got converted in the process so myself. Had, so mm-hmm. what made you come to that conclusion? I think some people... Secularly oriented people think of religious people, faithful people, as weak. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I just ran into someone like that um, back home recently. And, um, but I don't think religion is for the weak. I think religion is for people who know that there's more to life than we can understand on our own, Mm. that the past Mm. matters, that the wisdom of the ages is the wisdom of the ages for reason, Mm. and that religious traditions are seeking, and and this is something that's very important to me, the major religions of the world, let's just say the Abrahamic faiths, are all interested in ultimately in creating healthy societies. Mm. And that religious faith and religious practice and religious belonging to whatever form it is, is all about formation of people as healthy, constructive participants in their societies. And that isolated from those traditions and those, that history, we have to, we, we're, we're lost, really. And, and so mm. that's one reason why I'm interested in the religions mm. and in the way they can or cannot attempt to talk to one another. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, in that conversation you were having sort of early on in your your own mind, perhaps, but, you know, and, and drawn to, to religion as a, as a category and thinking about the different faiths and how they construct um, community and sometimes good, sometimes damaging ways. What particularly drew you to Christian faith out of that, as opposed to Islam, Judaism? I was not raised uh, with Christianity. Uh, I had Christian friends from a very young age, but I was not exposed to Christianity Mm -hmm. in my home at Mm -hmm. all. Um, But then um, having studied all the world's religions, I realized that I needed that belonging for guidance of my life, not because I'm weak, but mm. because I can't be alone in, in the world. Yeah. And, um, and then I started looking at them all more seriously. And then I came upon St. Paul. Huh. And... Uh, and among all the traditions, and St. Paul taught me that Christianity is about reconciliation and forgiveness. Mm. And um, and it was personally um, Ephesians 2.14 mm. mm. that says the wall of hostility has come down. And I said, I can base, and 2 Corinthians 5, and I said, I can base my life on that. It will show me a way to be and live in the world. 
It will give me a way to relate to other people. Mm. It will enable me to do the things in my life that I want to be able to do. And so I became a Christian. Mm. Fascinating. And, oh, but you talked about how your original premise uh, was to recognize how dangerous religion is. And theology for you was a way of defusing it of its dangerous elements and maximizing yes. its beneficial yes. elements. I suppose some would look at history and say theology has not always done that. You think of the religious wars of the 17th century, 16th, 17th century, um, and you think they were fighting about theology. Correct. Uh, and somebody might say, if we could just get rid of the theology and get on with the living of it and the practice of it, we'd be a whole lot better off. What? How would you respond right. to that? Right, so that was kind of my entry point. If we yeah. could, uh, I, th I think because theology does fuel a lot of violence in the world, hmm. it's a that's the reason I went to theology, to say, how can we think through what theology does, where it lands, what it intends to do to people, and anticipate the problems that might arise, and then see if we can frame the theology in, in, in constructive and helpful ways. And is that why the Ephesians... This is such an important one because precisely it's, uh, if you base your theology around the cross, it is about reconciliation. Correct. It is about correct, and the incarnation being about the bringing together of heaven and earth. Yes, it is bringing about together things that have previously that have been, been held been apart and held apart. apart. Yeah, yeah. Because right. I guess um, it's an interesting point, isn't it? It's a fascinating way into theology: the insight that religion can be such a dangerous thing. And I've often reflected on why why that is the case and why it is that, as you say, you know, next to nationalism, even more, more than nationalism, perhaps religion has caused a great deal of damage over the, the years. And, and, and I suppose one of the answers to that is that because religion touches something so deep within us, that in some ways, the more important something is to us, the more potential there is for us to misuse it and to, to abuse it and use it as a cause for, for harm. And it's just been a, we can use as human beings, we can use almost anything to, to even the best of things, perhaps especially yes. the best of things, yeah. uh, to damage and harm one another. You think of you know violence done in the name of family or or um, love or, or, or whatever. You know, all kinds of good things can be used for, for for violent ends. And almost the more important they are to us, the more deeply they touch us as human beings, the more potential they have to cause damage. Um, I mean, is that is that how you see the you know, why it is that religions have this potential to be quite damaging, or is there some other aspect of it that I think also it goes to the notion of human identity. Hmm. That is hmm. our religious convictions and our theological convictions, even when they're semi-articulate, which for many people they are, and that's part of the work of theologians to bring to articulacy uh, beliefs and ways of seeing the world. I think once our identity is connected, mm. then when something comes along that could threaten that, mm. people tend to become defensive. And that's the point at which theology itself becomes connected with power. Mm. And it's when the 
when the theology is is not controlled by the power, but the power controls the theology mm-hmm. that um, and 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 particularly people in offices where they have the power to use the theology, it slips over into being instead of for the common good, mm-hmm. it ends up being for their own advancement, and people lose the ability to distinguish those two yeah, things. Just, yeah. Actually, I'm going to be talking about that in my lecture this evening. Yeah, good. Oh. Yeah, because the question of identity is quite a tricky one, isn't it? Because in some ways, I, when I, th- I think of myself, I think fundamentally I'm a, I'm a Christian. That's, that's who I am. That's core to my identity. In some ways, it's the most important thing, you know, before I'm British or, you know, live in London. Golfer. Or golfer. Bristol Supporter City of Bristol fan, City. Whatever. <laughs> I'm a Christian. I, I would have thought that would be right balance, yeah. <laughs> you think so, just about. Um, and yeah, that's very easy to sort of slip that in. That becomes... You know, my membership of the Christian tribe over against the other tribe here, and then it becomes a kind of competitive thing, and that can so easily slip into something, you know, from something actually quite quite healthy, a deep Christian identity, into something yes. which is, which is which is quite dangerous. And I suppose it, the, the the key question is how how thick or thin that Christian identity is. You know, if it's just a label that describes the the, the tribe that I belong to, then it can become a a kind of oppositional thing with other tribes. But once you start defining Christian faith in terms of what you're talking about in Ephesians and 2 Corinthians 5, about it is about fundamentally about reconciliation rather than opposition, then you begin to get a different form of identity coming. And it's also about <coughs> a God who um, did not take the way of violence, uh, mm. which was mm. one of the options on the table at the time, um, but actually allowed violence to be done to him rather than doing violence to others. So I, mean, I think that the defusing power of the cross to mm-hmm. um, defuse religion of some of its dangerous mm-hmm. elements. So that's First Corinthians 1. Yeah. 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 That's, okay. that's a- appended to my other Pauline texts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're building up a list of them here now. <laughs> yeah. And Ellen, um, the, I was, the first book I, I read of yours, which I, I really enjoyed and in some ways I, I can say actually did change the way I think of theology in lots of ways was your um your book by the renewing of your minds the pastoral function of Christian doctrine which um I'm very grateful for as a book and uh, anyone listening I recommend it as a really really excellent book of theology to read and uh, what I loved about it was this sense that you made this connection between um well it sounds facile to say it but between theology and and, and life and virtue and uh, there are many books that do that, but I think you did it particularly well, if I might say so. Um, Thank you. And it's uh, it's written so so well as well. But that that particular connection of um, of theology is is not just something which is about getting our ideas about God straight. That it's not just about ticking a number of intellectual boxes or somehow having a kind of correct, a kind of theological correctness. But actually, it's about living well. It's about living an excellent human life. Yes. Um, what, what led you to that connection to that understanding of the theological task? I think the, in my case, um, there were there were two there were two elements of it. Um, before I was a theologian, I was a social worker. Hmm. I have a master's degree in social work, and I was working with uh, emotionally disturbed adolescents in um, residential placement facilities. Hmm. And uh, I happened uh, to be married to a psychiatrist of blessed hmm. memory. My husband hmm. is gone now. Okay. But, um, and in our conversation, 
I and because I was interested in theology as a formative experience of not just Christian formation, but theology as an instrument of human formation. And that's very, very important to me. Sometimes we think of th studying theology as Christian formation, mm. uh, apart from catechesis, but but for me, it's human formation. And so that worked together with my interest, my interest in having been trained in an enabling profession of social work, at least in the American context. And so these things naturally flow together. And for me, and because I risked a lot to become a Christian, it was not easy for me to become a Christian. Uh, it was very risky. If it was just about ticking off intellectual boxes and making the ideas be tidy. It it it, it couldn't work worth, for me. I, it would not have worked. I paid a cost to become a Christian, and I it would never have been worth the cost. And I couldn't once I became a Christian and had to reconstruct myself. I, I couldn't I couldn't do theology like that. It always strikes me that if you have a doctrine of the incarnation of God becoming human, then the more in tune with God one becomes the more human you become there Precisely. is no, there is no other thing that can happen Precisely um, uh, and because of, of of Christ being being both and therefore if you follow him we become more godly and we become more human simultaneously And I think that's one reason why I became an Anglican uh, which is a whole other story <laughs> but uh, but in the United States we say Episcopalian um and that's because the incarnation and is sacramentally accessible mm. to me. Mm. And that was extremely important. Yes. Yep. Yes. And you you write in I mean the, the book about a number of different theologians and how, how the how different theologians across the church's history have um uh you know, have seen theology and done their theology with the purpose of, of human flourishing. Yes. And um and again, I, I just found that a, a really intriguing and interesting way of thinking about about theology and its purpose um, for about um, human flourishing. And, and I suppose there's a couple of questions I have about that. I mean, I suppose one is a very simple question. Um, is there one theologian out of them all that you love the most because they do exactly that? That's the easiest question. <laughs> um, well, after St. Paul, whom I've already spoken about, we're talking about within the tradition, oh. the post-biblical tradition, Augustine of Hippo. Full stop. <laughs> Jane should be here. She would be she singing would be your purring. praises. She would be purring at this point. Yes, she yes. loves Augustine too. Like the queen at the referendum result. Purring, basically. Purring. Purring away, exactly. Yes. Yep. Um, and is that because he, um, he has this very strong theology of desire and, and love? that uh, this is about forming yes. desire and shaping desire. Yes, and because he gave us the divided self. Hmm. Now, he, I, I wish he had carried that through more explicitly throughout his corpus, um, but he, he is the world's first and perhaps greatest psychologist of all time. Hmm. And he, uh, barring, barring Romans 7, <laughs> and for the moment, mm -hmm. and um, 
And even though he divided the world into saints and sinners, the elect and the non-elect, let, let us say, for Augustine, he still enabled us to see inner conflict at the core of our being. And that life, the spiritual life, the, the movement toward God and the resistance to God that we all experience all of our lives is embedded in the human spirit and the human soul. And that was more, a word I like, as some people don't like this word, was more viscous mm -hmm. than anything else I encountered anywhere else. And, um, and he plays it out over and over and over and over again. Now, it's, I'm not saying that there aren't things in Augustine with which I disagree. There are things that I'm very concerned about in Augustine, but um, we wouldn't be who we are without him. It's, I, he's one of the most self-aware of yes. people, isn't people. he, let alone theologians. I mean, and one thinks that that's why uh, he was dissatisfied with what Pelagius was saying. Pelagius mm. talking about the perfectibility of, of human nature and how people just need to try harder. And, right. Uh, uh, and Augustine knew himself well enough to know that that was not good mm. enough. It mm. wasn't going to do the trick. It wasn't going to come anywhere near meeting human need, um, let alone not being gospel in any way. Right. Anyway. The, other, the other thing I think that connects into what we were saying earlier on is that this is one of the ways in which religion goes bad is when you kind of polarize the world. You know, it's us good people over against those bad people out there. You know, us religious people, we've got it right. We know what, what, what's, what's true. We are the good. We are the elect. And out there, they're the bad people. Right. And I think the thing about Augustine is he... He, he won't have anything of, of that because yeah. he knows that the, the line between good and evil actually runs right through every human heart, not between the the good and the bad people. Right. And so you're you're <coughs> unable to do anything like that. You can't objectify sort of bad, evil people out there. You can't have that dualistic view of the world if you have anything like an Augustinian psychology, um, because he takes you right into the very heart of him, his own soul, that you, and which you know is quite similar to to to. to your own when you when you read it if you have again any sensitivity or can you know you know how that um how divided as you say that you know how divided our own selves are and that then diffuses a lot of religion's potential to to demonize to 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 oppose and to become a weapon in a lot of social disputes it seems to me yeah and i think there's a the the, the flip side of that is that god for him is the ultimate peace uh, and and that which we do not have because our own inner conflictedness is is that for which we long and that which therefore is only to be found in the person of god because there in the triune interchange there is um, all that richness and diversity but in harmony and, and not in conflict um, and i think that's what that's partly why he becomes a theologian of desire in that kind right. of way. Mm -hmm. uh, how then is that um, that inner conflictedness healed? Because it, you know you, you talk a, a bit, quite a lot in your book about um, mm -hmm. um, the enjoyment of God. Yes. And uh, there's a bit here. I hesitate to read back your own <laughs> to yourself, Alan. <laughs> right. But there you go. Uh -oh. I'm going to do it anyway. All right. um, we may liken training in enjoying God to growing in the enjoyment of Mozart's music. Yeah. It can be enjoyed at face value, but the degree of enjoyment increases when one's ear is trained to pick out the harmonies and dissonances. 
It's possible to be a Christian without much training. Some would say it requires only acceptance of Jesus as Lord. Others would say it requires a warm heart and an outstretched hand. But to progress in Christian excellence beyond the basics requires training and cultivation of the skill of attending to God and of re-examining and reforming oneself in the light of that attending. And um, I suppose that, that did I of, write that? You did write well, it's isn't it? It's always a surprise when you read your own stuff back again. <laughs> did I really write that? It's very good. <laughs> so, I mean, it, just that sort of attending to God, um, how does that work? Because I'm just thinking of, you know, people listening to this, you think, well, you know, I, I would love to somehow overcome that divided. So I know about what that feels like. I know that conflictedness. Um, but I, and I'm looking for a path that that um, leads to a more unified self, a more kind of whole and healthy self. And so that, that kind of enjoyment of God, attending to God, how does that begin to resolve that divided self, do you think? I'm going back to Augustine in the De Doctrina Christiana in the beginning, where, which is a bit um, controversial, but, mm. <laughs> but he does encourage us to see everything in life in a God-framed sense, so that even the most mundane of our activities, and this is what uh, pulled me into Christianity, that it provided a frame through which my entire life can take on a larger mm. meaning. Mm. And I'm never alone. One thing I say to my students, if you're baptized, keep in mind that, I just say this to my students, um, keep in mind that Jesus Christ in your baptism is in between you and every other human being. Hmm. And so every time you touch another person's body, mind, or spirit, you must pass through Christ. Hmm. And that is what I think Augustine, something like that, is what I think Augustine intends for us to understand so that we take that grace of the Holy Spirit given to us in baptism and enable it to empower us to use the strengths and abilities and powers that we have in a way not only that enables us to touch others adroitly and agilely, but then also enables us to be healed internally as we continue to do that and that's what i tried to bring out in the second mm, book sure. yeah that that's the ending mm. of the second okay. book yeah uh, just en passant mozart, mozart. why are theologians so obsessed, with, obsessed mozart? with mozart so, um, mike is obsessed with handel i'm, I'm obsessed point. with handel. Oh, that's fine Which, so but, but, absolutely but hans kung wrote a book on, uh, on Mozart. Karl Bart, uh, Bart wrote, wrote a book, book on, on Mozart. Mozart. But it doesn't deal with the music exactly in the, in that book. But anyway. No, well, that's true. Yeah, Are you going to write? You, is that a No, no, for? I know. I No, no, no. I have too many books. <laughs> I'm not going to live long enough to write all the books there that are, are in me. Yeah. But I mean, going on to your, um, your most recent book, which is, uh, yeah. for those who want to get hold of it, God and the Art of Happiness. Um well, that, the, the the idea of happiness it's there in the in the earlier book but you bring yes. it out a much more more sort of um, fully in the second one um why did you focus on that word as 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 a, as a key word for christian yes. flourishing um 
It's a very controversial word, and um, depending on the Christian audience, I mostly speak to Christian audiences, and depending on the communion they come from, um, they respond quite differently to my use of the word. When I speak with Roman Catholics, they are fine with the word happiness. Uh, When I speak with Lutherans, they can deal with happiness. When I speak to people from the Reformed tradition, Mm. they become very distressed and say, couldn't you please speak about joy instead? Mm. Now, why have I chosen this uh, unpleasant word for many Christians? And the reason is because in America, I can only speak for the American context, We've abandoned the word, if I say it in, in, in Latin, it's less uh, troubling, felicitas or beatitudinis. We have ceded this to the mall. Mm. We have given this word, this very properly Augustinian word. Mm. It's a proper Augustinian yep. word. Um, we've, we've let go of it. And uh, I'll give you a little example. Uh, before this book, the second book really had taken shape, I gave some lectures at a small theological college in the Midwest. Uh, that wasn't really small, but a theological school in, uh, in the Midwest. And uh, after the second or third lecture, um, a gentleman, the people were passing out of the hall, and a gentleman came by and whispered sotto voce in my ear, there are more important things to think about. <laughs> said he <laughs> and walked away <laughs> to think about it, presumably yes. that I should think about this <laughs> yeah. and uh, so I asked myself now what is this gentleman trying to tell me and I concluded he, I never saw him again so I couldn't ask him if I was right mm. but I, I think he said that Christians should think and talk about being good not mm. about being happy mm. And uh, that made me want to talk about being happy even more mm. because the notion that being good means that we should be unhappy mm. or that if we're happy, it means that we're not good mm. is a classic division within Christian ethics mm. to which I am quite opposed. And that's the main argument mm. of the second mm. book, mm. that this is a false choice. Yes. It's a forced mm. choice. And um, and I think it's quite uh, uh, not only unnecessary but a harmful division that's been made in uh, in Christian agapistic ethics. And it it has a strange view of God, doesn't it? That God would not want us to be happy. To be happy. Correct. Now, we may not be happy for all sorts of good reasons, but the idea that He would somehow not want it. But I suspect, suspect there are quite a few Christians who instinctively their understanding of God is actually not that he wants us to be happy. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of um, underneath it, a sort of, well, that kind of add a moral strenuousness about it that, that God thinks a good dose of suffering or whatever is actually quite good for us and, and, and so on. And actually happiness seems rather frivolous and, and, right. and kind of inconsequential. Right. Um, but and again, back to, back to Augustine, you know, is it... Um, you know, they seek happiness not in you, but in what you have created. That seems to be right at the core of, of Augustine. And it is happiness he's talking about. It is clearly happiness. So and he has long you're... tracts on it. You know, in the De Trinitati, there's a yeah. whole section on it. Yeah. And in other works, too, yeah. he talks quite extensively about happiness. 
because it's in our life in God and in coming. And, and for Augustine, it's learning to love better. For, for Augustine, I think happiness is learning to love better, learning to love the create, the God's creation, and through God's creation, learning to love God better, and learning to love better makes us happy. C.S. Lewis, interestingly, brings uh, these things together a little bit, morality and, and happiness, by saying he f- feels we have a duty to be as happy as we can. Yes, uh, now, precisely. Obviously, there's a whole of other things to be weighed into that, like one's responsibility towards others, and it's right. not self-indulgence, but but that we love ourselves uh, as well as others and God. Right. I think that's when you say love ourselves, I think Christians have fallen into the misunderstanding that self-love is unchristian. Mm-hmm. And Augustine would have none of it. He Augustine talks about proper Christian mm-hmm. self-love. And he's quite eloquent about it. Um, What Christians don't want to be is selfish, but self-love, properly understood, theologically understood in God, has nothing to do with selfishness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been confused in the Christian, popular Christian mind. Um, And and Augustine's a big help on that. And indeed, I think, actually, having a healthy self-love helps you... To love others, to love and love, others and love the world itself, the physical world, and yes. take care of it. Exactly, exactly. Right. Right. It makes sense that if if one if you consider yourself as something created by God, as we do, we do. It is um, slightly odd to think that we should not take pleasure in that which God has created, because that is Precisely. what God yes. has made. Um, having said that, I'm aware that you know, there are quite long strands of the Christian tradition that do talk about. A sort of self hatred. I mean, yes. Pascal, for example, talks yes, about Yes, Pascal features in my soir. book. <laughs> <laughs> for just that reason. Yeah, exactly. And he does talk about that sort of self self hatred. Yes, there's a slightly dark side of, of Pascal. I mean, what do you do with that? Do you just think he's just wrong, or is, it, is there something that he's. Or does he mean something else? Yeah. I couldn't make much headway with Pascal on that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't quite dig him out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was mm-hmm. all that, I don't know, that kind of Jansenism or whatever it is yeah, that he yeah, got stuck yeah. in there. Yeah. It may be, I mean, I suppose it, it, <laughs> I do wonder with Pascal sometimes whether it's, it's a bit like, the, you know, the, the two, you know, the, 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 the two selves that, um, that uh, maybe St. Paul talks about, the old man and the new, the new right. man. And, and in a sense, you know, Jesus' instruction to, you know, take up your, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And the denying the self, it seems to me there is in a sense, not, not a denying of one's, created self one's god-given self one's self as being recreated by christ but it is that that self which is the sort of slightly mean whining i want to be the center of the world type self which in a sense there is a there is a kind of call to 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 deny that self right but it's when you confuse that with the whole of my created self that's when you get a problem because um so if you if you know if if i was going to rescue pascal a little bit i'd say that's the kind of He's 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 he's, talk, he's talking about a, a a kind of an ability to say no to that self, but actually a, a, a saying yes to the new self that is being recreated in the image of Christ. One of the reasons that this is of concern to me um, is because sometimes preachers have not helped people mm-hmm. keep those two yeah. things separate, yeah. Yeah. especially in the case of women. Yeah. And women, uh, for a whole variety of reasons, partly because they've been victims of Christian preachers who don't keep those things apart, 
and their men have also not been able to keep those things, those two understandings of the self and self-denial apart. Um, women have uh, traditionally tended to um, take on the self emptying the the canonic notion the self-sacrifice the self-denial self-abnegation which are also calvin's words self-abnegation is a calvin word phrase at least in translation um and i think this danger that i'm pointing to has uh has 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 had damaging effects on women and so even though i don't talk about it in either of my books that is also under what what's pushing me mm-hmm. in this even though i'm not known as a feminist theologian mm-hmm. i am a woman theologian and mm-hmm. my concerns for women are absolutely central in precisely this regard mm-hmm. i mean and i think graham's distinction there between the self the, t- the two different meanings of self mm-hmm. is really helpful and really important because one could imagine somebody taking your idea that um, you know God wants us to be happy, and that could become a terrible strap line, so that whenever I am in a moral conflict, uh-huh. I think, well, God wants me happy, so I will do what make, brings me pleasure rather than what is right in a particular context. I mean, there can be a conflict between absolutely what is right and. And what is pleasurable can't can't uh, absolutely, but one thing I try to bring out in my second book, um, where I try to develop really what is, even though I never use the term, is a is a theological eudaimonism, a Christian eudaimonism. Okay, tell tell me what you mean by eudaimonism. Um, it's the notion, at least as I, I I develop a whole new word for it in in the second book. Um, between um, that it, that is 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 neither secular eudaimonism that Kant taught Christians to fear and hate, mm-hmm. or um, or even Aristotle's eudaimonism um, on one hand and um, agapistic ethics on the other, and what I develop in the second book God, called God and the Art of Happiness is an attempt to understand obedience to divine command. Obedience to it's. I develop a new theory mm. of divine command that's mm. not voluntarist, mm. but is um, an understanding of divine command as a way of being in the world that enables us to um, live in such a way that we enhance that by being good, that by mm. being good we enhance our own well-being. That being good, making the right moral choices, strengthens us, our character, our virtue, and our pleasure in ourselves and in our own functioning that can mitigate some of those hard choices. It's a different kind of pleasure that we take in ourselves when we're able to live graciously, even if it costs us time, talent, and treasure. And that's what I'm trying to develop. That's my understanding. So, <clears throat> so doing the right thing may be very painful. May be very and painful. Often is, but it is less tangled and twisted, and less tangled and twisting of ourselves. Right, and it untwists. It us. untwists. Actually, mm. positively it untwists, untwists us untwists and us. situations and relationships. Correct. And 
and then strengthens us for the next situation to deal yeah. with our with the next situation more confidently yes. because the back to augustine the the divided self is being healed mm. in the course of doing that and strengthened for the next opportunity to 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 live better so i'm interested in learning to live excellently to have excellent lives in resp in obedience to divine command would you <clears throat> would you say that doing the the right thing making right moral choices even when it is uh, difficult difficult and to our own disadvantage disadvantage makes us more therapeutic human beings I, god willing i believe so yeah. Yeah. that's my hope that's <laughs> why i wrote the book yeah we um we probably ought to draw our discussion to a close but just one last question for you ellen um I mean, your book is uh, God and the Art of Happiness, and if someone is listening to it and think, thinking, well, I like the sound of that. I like this idea of the art of happiness. Um, and if there was one thing, one habit, one practice that you would want to suggest to people listening to this that will make them truly happy in the fullest sense of that word, what would that be? Are we talking to Christians listening to this? Yes, so mainly. Yep. All right. So um, I would say is to live into the fullness of your baptism. And the power of the Holy Spirit given to you in your baptism, and now we've reclaimed chrismation, which is unfortunately inadequately appreciated and understood. And that in our baptism and chrismation, I was baptized as an adult, mm. that the, the power of God for good in the world resides within us is a power given to us through the church by God through the church and that is all you need <laughs> mm. that's pretty good that is yep return to your baptism that's what Luther said that's right that's what you do yes and you um, just return to your baptism day after day that's and that all was there. his basis of reassurance wasn't yeah, it, it was. i've been yeah. baptized you don't go through the penitential system try to somehow re recollect all your sins right. and do all kinds of good works to make you feel better that's to be strengthened oh. yeah exactly brilliant ellen thank you so much yes. for thank being you with us very today. much thank you, very much thank you and um thank you as always michael it's a pleasure particularly because of the gingerbread that might have come from somewhere in the lakeland area so we will sign off and mike will get his teeth into the gingerbread and uh, we will see you next time goodbye Bye. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.